Welcome. This is the Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast. Hey, welcome everybody. This is Joe McCall and this is the Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast. Glad you're here. We got a special guest today. And uh, before I introduce him to you, I just want to remind you guys that all of these podcasts that we do, and this is probably number 580 or something like that, you can get the show notes, listen to the recording at realestateinvestingmastery.com, realestateinvestingmastery.com. Make sure you go there and uh, get the show notes. And we're going to have a bunch of links and stuff like that that we're going to give you. And also, if you like the show, please leave us a review in iTunes. I just want to—I ask you guys that every time we do a podcast because it really does mean a lot to me and to my team. We put so much effort and time into these podcasts that when we see the reviews, we read every single one of them, and it's really cool to see. So if you like the show, even if you don't, leave us a review in iTunes. We'd appreciate it. So I have a special guest. His name is Ron Phillips. Some of you guys might know Ron. Maybe some of you don't, but uh, Ron, uh, we've become good friends over the last few months, and uh, he's in one of my masterminds. I really admire and respect Ron. He is one of those guys that's been around for a long time, done a lot of deals, and he's a no BS type of guy, and I know that's kind of cliche because people say that all the time, but Ron just tells you like it is, and he's not going to inflate the truth. You know, He's not going to tell you whatever you want to hear just so that he can get the sale, right? Ron has been doing business for a long time, and he's very open and transparent about his journey. And so after talking to him, I asked him, hey, man, let's, can I get you on the podcast and you can tell us a little bit more about where you are now, kind of where you've come from, because I think a lot of people will benefit from hearing your journey. So Ron Phillips, how are you, man? Man, I'm great. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for the invitation. This is officially the first podcast I've ever been on, Joe. Is it really? I, it, it is, man. It is. I've done some interviews with people, but it's usually, you know, for a mastermind, it's a closed group. So this is, uh, this is exciting, man. <laughs> well, that's, I'm surprised to hear that really, Ron, because you've been, you've been in the business for a long, long time. And I'm just surprised that I feel honored. Well, I mean, I, I just, uh, yeah, I just do a lot of stuff kind of <laughs> In the background, I guess, man. I, I have been in the business for a long time, and I used to speak all over the place. And then, you know, I, I don't have to do that anymore, so I don't. Yeah. Well, that's one of the things I want to ask you, because you used to be one of those gurus that would travel all over the country, literally, a lot. And you kind of stepped away from a lot of that. But can we even rewind further? And let's go back to what were you doing before you got into real estate? You know, my story is going to be like a whole bunch of other people that, that people out here probably have heard. You read right? Rich Dad, Poor Dad, right? <laughs> Actually, uh, I didn't. I didn't even know that book existed. I was, a, I was a director of sales for a company, and I was reading The Millionaire Mind, incidentally. Hmm. I traded The Millionaire Mind to a guy, and he gave me Rich Dad's Guide to Investing. So I actually started on the, I don't know, whatever, third or fourth book in the series. Yeah, yeah. But it was the Rich Dad series, incidentally. And I started learning about this real estate thing. And then I got laid off 
And I was broke. Like, you know, I mean, that sounds cliche too, but I was, I really was. What, what year was this? Uh, I don't even remember. It was in the late nineties. Okay. And then I answered an ad from the online newspaper. Man, I was in the, it was in the freaking newspaper. That's how, I mean, anyway, millionaire seeks apprentice, you know, like now they put them on with a magic marker on the, on the street corner back then it was actually an online ad. And I went and I thought I was going to a job interview and it was a seminar. Wow. So I am a product of the uh, seminar world. Uh, and I went out and did my first deal without their help. It was interesting because the pitch this guy gave was that, you know, he would split the deal with you 50, 50 and he would fund it. You find it. Yeah. And do all that, right. Well, I submitted my first deal and they promptly denied it and wouldn't tell me why. So I just used the class, which was pretty good. Uh, obviously, I, I did my first deal and um, made just under $20,000 in just under 30 days. And uh, I never looked back, man. I've, I've been on the, the the journey the whole whole the rest of the rest of the time up till current. I've been doing real estate. Is this guru who did the workshop, the coaching program still in business today? I don't know. And, um, you know, I've never smeared this guy's name anywhere. And, uh, you know, because looking back, even though they kind of screwed me over from what they, they pitched me, um, the information that he gave me was good enough that I, I did my first deal. Now, I, I think most people wouldn't have done that. Most people would have put their head down and, and, yeah. you know, a little bit that they wasted thousands of dollars on a, on a, on a seminar. But, um, but I didn't have any money, man. I didn't have any choice. I had to go make some money. Wow. And so, uh, it just turned out that my first deal was a really, really good one. And yeah, I never looked back. What, uh, what market was this in? It was just outside of Kansas city, Missouri, which is uh, kind of my, my stomping grounds, man. It was just there a couple of days ago. Yeah. Close to you, man. Right. Rivalry going on. <laughs> All right. So, um, what year was that, Ron? I think that was in like 98 or 99. Wow. I want to say, I can't remember exactly. So one one of those years. So what were you? What did you start doing after that? And what what? I'm sorry, I wanted to ask you also. What field were you working in? I was in sales, man. I just okay. uh, I had been on in sales ever since I got out of the military, and um, I liked the freedom that that came from sales position, and and so uh, I was pretty decent at it. Okay. And I I guess one of the things I would tell everybody is that um, you know when you start out, people say they started out with nothing, and and I don't believe that, man. I I did start out with no money. But I didn't start out with nothing. Hmm. I had time to invest because I was laid off, right? And in addition to that, I knew how to negotiate. So I didn't start off with nothing. I started off with with, with a pretty good leg up on anybody else who, who might go to a, a seminar, right? Because I already knew how to negotiate. I wasn't scared of people. And, um, and I had all the time in the world. Well, you had desire, a hunger, and you had some sales skills. Yeah. I, I think I'm convinced if you understand sales and you may not be like really good at it, but if like you can become good at it or, or be, just be a student of sales, you can make money in any business. Yeah, absolutely. And if you're trying to run a business and you're not good at sales, you should go get a course. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Cause the more I'm more I'm in this business, the more that just makes sense to me. And uh, sales is so important. Okay. So this was the late nineties. The market crashed. Nobody, not too many people remember this or talk about it because it pales in comparison to the market crash in 2008. But uh, the market was, you know, it was at the time it was 
the worst thing since the uh, Great Depression. The market crashed with the dot-com bubble, the burst, you know, in late, uh, early 2000. And I remember at the time, uh, a lot of values, house values were falling. How did that affect you at that time? Do you remember? You know, it really didn't affect uh, it. Really didn't affect Kansas City and the marketplace, the market that we were in. We, you know, I was I was rehabbing and flipping houses in the hood in Kansas City. That's not where I did my first deal, but that's where we we uh, where we moved to because there was no shortage of deals there, right? Okay. Yeah. So we moved there. We were selling properties um, through HUD. You know, we were doing HUD loans down there, and the next major thing that happened right after we got our business running was really cool because we. We had this thing kind of, I mean, it was really chugging along. And then uh, there was some fraud that happened in Kansas City specifically. Uh-huh. And HUD came in and just changed the guidelines. Overnight, you had to have a year on on title. And we were, in effect, out of business. I mean, we couldn't we couldn't figure out how to, how to get past a year, right? So we had these houses that we that we had under construction. Uh, rehab and um, that you bought from it, HUD, right? No, no, no. We we bought them from all over the place. Some of them we bought from HUD, sure, um, foreclosures. Um, but we bought them from individuals and things like that. We did, we did in the hood. We did some really crazy marketing because we did door to door flyers. On one side of the flyer, it had the properties we had for sale, and on the other side of the flyer, it had we buy houses in our number. And we would literally go door to door in one of the most dangerous parts of Kansas City. Uh, my brother and I. Wow, <laughs> that's, serious. That's how we marketed that and signs uh, that we put up there as well. That's how we marketed, and we bought a ton of properties that way. Wow, because like apparently no one else is willing to dodge um, pit bulls and and stuff like that. So anyway, then we were just out of business overnight. We put um, renters in the properties, um, sold some of them on lease option, um, and we got into the rental game. Man, that was kind of the next phase of my of my business career because uh the 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 rehab business kind of got shut off the way we were doing it so why how long did this rule stay in effect well i don't remember because we we got out of the business i I don't remember actually huh and so this was hud dictating this i'm trying to figure out how they could even do that well there was a ton of fraud uh, fraud on hud uh in this particular market um in in the lower income area in kansas city and um, they had had a bunch of people who were, you know, doing kind of the same thing that happened in 2008 in a lot of places where they were they had a, an appraiser in their pocket and they were yeah. going around or just they were just jacking the prices up. And then it would get foreclosed on and HUD was losing massive amounts of money and the properties were never worth that much money. And, you know, the story. And so, yeah, they came in and changed their guideline to try to get these people out of the business. So instead of punishing the people who actually did it, they punished everybody, including the people who lived there, because, you know, then there was a shortage of, of yeah. property we could sell to the to the people who lived in that marketplace. And, none, and you couldn't qualify any other um, loan program other than HUD down there. So. Wow. OK, so what what happened after that? You, you you've I'm assuming you've read the book Who Moved My Cheese, right? I have. I hadn't at that time, but I, I have since. Yeah. And what happened next is that we started, uh, you know, we have our own property. So we had to figure that game out. Yeah. And it's funny. I, I started a, we started to hang out with these people. We had bought properties from people who who owned rental properties down there. And I, I never really occurred to me, but they had a lot more time on their hands than I did, huh. at, you know, uh, the more that I hung around with people who owned rental property, the more that I realized um, 
they, they actually had a pretty decent thing going. I used to think that, you know, rehabbing and flipping houses was the only way to make money and it was fast money. And, you know, it's like, it's like the, uh, it's like the crack of, of the real estate investing world, right? Cause you get a really <laughs> quick rush, but then it's That's gone. not a good way to put it, Ron. That's not a good <laughs> But yeah, I loved it, man. The quick money was great. And and I never understood the whole passive income thing because um, it took longer to build it up, you know? Hmm. But what I learned is that you need both. You need you need a shot in the arm so that you can actually purchase the the properties that provide you the the passive income. Right. So you, you need a good mix of all of those things. Yeah. And you know, then I got into my current business and, and my current business is helping, you know, busy professionals and, and people who don't have time to go out and find their own deals, find income properties across the country. So you've been doing that ever since? Since 2005. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I didn't realize it had been that long. That's over 13 years. Yeah. I've been doing this for a while. So you've seen a lot. So I want to I want to dive deeper into that. So you started you kind of became a landlord by accident, right? Yes. And so about when this started happening, how many rental properties did you own? I think we had I think we had five or six that were under construction, which is what we got stuck with. Um, so not a ton, you know. But for us, I mean, we probably had in in five or six houses, we probably had, you know. Two, $250,000 worth of equity sitting in those houses that we couldn't get out. So uh, for us, it was a really big deal. You know, yeah. we had a lot of money sitting in those houses. Was it, was it borrowed money or cash? Yeah. We had to get out of hard money loans. Oh, wow. Try to refinance them in, in, in our, and our income got shut off at the same time. So it was really difficult because as everybody listening probably knows, banks don't like people who, whose income stream got shut off. So oh, it, it, was, it was a really stressful time. Ron, banks don't even like people who have a lot of money. <laughs> no, right? They want to give you a loan if you don't need it. <laughs> Let's not talk about that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So it was stressful, man, but we, you know, we got through it. And, uh, you know, we were blessed to have been moved into an area that served me really well for, well, like you said, a, lo a long time. Wow. Yeah, it certainly has. Now, those properties in Kansas City in the hood... I'm very familiar with that area. It's it it's a rough area. Does that's a place you still like to invest in? Oh, absolutely not. And okay. I would tell no. And I, I when I was speaking, I would show my houses and I would tell people a, a story in, in each one of my presentations. You know, it's just so people understood why you don't want to go there. I mean, we carried a gun when we were down there. It was oh, just not. Wow. You know, it's just not. No one should do that. It's a bad idea. And looking back now, I mean, we're lucky that we're alive. I don't, I don't know why we did that, but it seemed like a really natural thing at the time. Wow. Okay, so um, maybe you can dive, talk about that for two, a minute here too. I think people are attracted, especially sometimes people from the West Coast, right, where the cheapest house you can buy is five hundred thousand dollars, and that's a two-bedroom shack. They see an opportunity in a, in a market like Kansas City or you know any Midwest market where. They can buy a house for twenty grand, thirty grand. It rents for maybe seven or eight hundred a month. They get excited because they think, "Oh my gosh, that's huge amounts of cash flow, and I can buy ten of those right now." But the problem is what, Ron? I mean, well, the pro there's 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 a number of problems with yeah. those properties. The the first of them being that 
it's a it's a ridiculously old house and I don't care what you do to it unless you raise it up and put a new foundation on it and completely build it new it's an old property they're like 100 years old 80 to 100 years old down there right and the, yeah. so you're going to have problems with them from that perspective the second thing that you're going to have problems with is that the tenant pool down there is not your ideal tenant pool and your turnover is going to be really really high and every time you have turnover, you're not going to have a normal turnover. You're going to have a rehab job, right? So every time that the property turns over, you get to rehab that house all over again, which mm. eats up all of your cash flow. Yep. Um, and that's if you don't have people that get parked in there that you have to kick out and know the system and they stay there for longer. It's not like California, but it's still not fun. I mean, it's just you, you don't want to. There's, a, there's any number of reasons you don't want to be down there. There's an article, a real popular blog post in or forum post on Bigger Pockets, and uh, if you just Google it, you can find it. How this guy goes through the numbers detailed by in, in in very good detail of why it is impossible to make money in a thirty thousand dollar rental property, and I thought it was interesting. But his main premise is capital expenditures, future it's capital ex expenditures. I mean it's the. You, you look at the numbers and it makes sense. Like, wow, I can make 15% cash on cash the first year. You know, even figuring in vacancies and maintenance and repairs and property management and all that stuff. But what people ignore is you're going to have to fix that house up when it's vacant. And it needs... And, the, and, the, not, and, and let's just... That's discounting also the time it takes to... to even if you're using a property management company... Yeah approve all the work orders and all the crap that goes along with that. Right. And, and you, you gotta, you gotta add in, you gotta add back in your time. There's, it's not a good idea in, in any way, shape or form. It's not a good idea. Incidentally, most of those houses, they're, they're rented section eight. And one of the other things that happened in Kansas city was the section eight used to used to use a point system where if you put a ceiling fan in and some other things, you get all these points, right. And they would pay the rent based on the points, not mm. based on, on market value. So people would go in and put in the cheapest everything they could to be able to get the points and the cash flow numbers were stupid. I mean, they were off the charts ridiculous, right? For these horrible homes. Yeah. And then again, the government came in and they said, ah, man, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going back to market rents. Hmm. And the, the market rents were still higher, but they were nowhere even close to as high. And um, it killed, a, I mean, a number of the people who were there were, were done. They were out of business um, because the government changed its mind. And so I've learned over time, man, you, you don't want to be the guy or gal who's out there and is is 100% reliant on a government vehicle because they can change their mind. Well, I was going to ask you about that, Garan, because the Section 8, you know, it's kind of quote unquote guaranteed rent. And if a tenant trashes a property, won't Section 8 fix it? No, no, hell no. Um, as a matter of fact, Section 8 sticks up for the tenants more often than not, uh, in my experience. Supposedly, those people are supposed to lose their voucher. But I, I tell a story. We walked through a, one of our rental properties that we got stuck with down there, and there was a hole in the wall. And um, so we failed our inspection. And the inspector said, you have to fix the hole in the wall. Well, we were up there with the inspector and with, with the tenant. And this hole looked like it had, it wasn't like cut, it wasn't broken or anything like that in the, in the drywall. And we asked the lady, like, how, how did this hole get there? And she said, well, my son likes to chew on the drywall. Oh. Okay, so this hole is big, right? 
<laughs> and the inspector was there while she admitted that her son chewed the hole in the wall. Wow. And guess we still had to fix it. We did. If we wanted any more money from Section 8, we had to fix it. Right. And that happens time and time and time again. So this deal where um, the money's guaranteed. Yeah, the money's guaranteed. But if you think that they're going to repair your place after you leave your beer, I have never found that to be true. OK, so these homes in these areas, is there any way to make money in, the, in those types of rental properties or does it just take a special kind of person? Yeah, to do you're the, if you're the guy who's buying it and selling it to somebody on the West Coast, you can make a lot of money. <laughs> How, how's that? Uh, that's a great answer, Ron. <laughs> so everybody knows their sales floor is set up specifically for that business. Oh, um, my gosh. They get shut down and then they pop up somewhere else. So just be wary of those. You know, the only people that are laughing to that are the people in the Midwest that know what we're talking about. <laughs> Maybe. Not, I've, I've talked to way too many people who it's not funny for because they bought 10 of those things and now they can't, they can't get rid of them. Um, I talked to, I talked to a dentist who had bought, um, he bought 10 houses in St. Louis over in your, your neck of the woods, but he bought them. Three of them were just outside of Ferguson um, when all of the craziness happened in Ferguson. And he, he was trying to get rid of them. Well, you, nobody wants a house in Ferguson. You know, it's all over the national news what happened there, right? Wow. So, yeah. When did he buy these homes? Do you remember? Probably like four years ago, three or four years ago. And he paid like, he paid like 50 or 60 grand for all of them. And they're, none of them are worth probably 20. Wow. Because yeah. there's some good areas out there, actually. Believe it or not, people think Ferguson is like this really, really rough area. And compared to the rough areas in St. Louis, it's not. But what's interesting is um, when that happened, yeah, it just kind of made the whole area. Um, you gave it a black eye? Yeah, yeah, I gave him a black eye. And I'm hoping that we didn't sell that guy any of those properties. <laughs> I'm sure you didn't because it wasn't rehabbed. Uh, it was a it was a piece of trash. Okay, well that's good. We we only did sell um, rehabs, and that's one of the things I wanted to ask you. As my awesome wife brings me some coffee, thank you. Man, that is awesome. Appreciate it. All right, so um, the Section Eight that's not what it's cracked up to be, and. Uh, you know, let's let's just let's stick with Kansas City for a little bit because I think this is a it's it's a really good rental market that I think uh, indicative to a lot of different uh, markets right now that cash flow because it's it is hard to find cash flowing residential real estate in California, right? Yeah. But markets like Kansas City, there are some good areas that you can buy cash flow real estate. What what is an example of a good home that you typically? will invest in yourself, Ron, or sell to another investor? Yeah, so we buy, um, we buy mostly newer, you know, 20, 30 years old, brand new construction. Um, and we buy them in the, in the suburbs. And we, we do, we sell um, quite a few properties in Kansas City. Mm -hmm. Mostly uh, new, new construction up in the Northland. Anybody who's familiar with, with Kansas City would know, but it's all in the suburbs, in places where people would like to live. And Kansas City is actually a, a, a really good good city um, because it, it checks off a number of boxes. Number number one rule being that, that you have to have positive cash flow after all expenses, including maintenance and, and vacancies, right? And then you need an, a diverse economy, which Kansas City has. There's, there's a lot of different jobs there and a lot of different um, subsets, right? There's job growth, commercial development, populations growing, 
it's relatively affordable and there's good schools. Want to be in places where they have low crime rate, not a high crime rate, things like that. The things where, where the people listening to this podcast would want to live. That's where you buy rental properties. Interesting. And, you know, then I started buying rental properties the same way I teach everybody else to, you, you know, start with single family homes, something that's smaller, um, smaller multifamily, you know, duplexes or fourplexes, stuff like that. So you can get your feet wet and see if this thing is, is right for you before you go jumping into some large property. You know, you got to have really solid property management because most people listening to this podcast are not good property managers. Most of us are way too nice. You know, yeah. we'll let people skip with rent and, you know, and we don't want to deal with all the hassles and things like that. But property managers are not all created equal. So you have to have a really, really good, solid property management company. And then your investment can can work. Um, and you can still make double digit um, cash on cash return if, you know, if you leverage into a, one of the awesome loan products that we have right now, yeah. you know, so plus you get, you know, there's four returns on a cash flow property. So cash on cash return is only one of the four mm. and it's a good one. And it's the one you should look at most importantly, but there, there are three other ones. Yeah. Talk about that, please. Yeah. So the second one is that you have arbitrage, you have some arbitrage between your because your tenants are paying down your mortgage, mm -hmm. right? So your mortgage is going down every single year and you're not the one paying it. And so you're making a return there every single year. In addition to that, you, you get some tax benefit from owning rental properties. And I would never buy a, a property solely based on that because again, like I said earlier, the government can change that anytime they want to. Yeah. Most people in, in government own rental properties, so they probably won't change that because it negatively impacts them, but they could, you know, it could go away. And then lastly, and um, which is probably the one that's, that's, that's last on my list for a reason, and that is uh, appreciation because nobody knows what's going to happen with appreciation. But the homes that you're doing are much more likely to appreciate, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely, because you've bought them in all the areas that are growing you're, you're, you know, you're buying them in areas that people actually want to move into. And so, yeah, your, your, your odds increase, obviously, if you buy in an area like that. And if you buy in the area where I first started out, they're only going to get so high because the people in that, in that particular market can't afford anything outside of that. And most of them can't buy anyway. So you, you've kind of, you kind of capped yourself, I guess. Let me, let me just make it real plain and simple for you guys. These homes in these neighborhoods that we were talking about before, they're at the same prices today that they were 20 years ago. Period. Correct. They've not gone up at all. As a matter of fact, you, you, can, you can buy the same houses that, that I bought and rehabbed, and you can buy them and rehab them again. Exact same ones, all of them. I, I drove through. I did a tour. Um, it was funny because there was another company that was selling properties, and one of our clients I just happened to be in Kansas City when they called me and said, hey, man, is this a good deal? And so I just I drove down there because I knew the area. Yeah. And I just did a video and I, I just showed them. I'm like, hey, look, here here's a house that I rehabbed, you know, and there it has its gang tags all over it. Um, and it was it was beautiful. It's cute. If you saw a picture of it and you're sitting out there on the West Coast, you go, man, that's a cute house. I'd buy that thing, you know, and then you look, you know, two or three doors down and they're all boarded up. So, well, let, let's talk about. um the numbers on, on these types of homes in these areas, Ron, like the, you know, the, the suburbs people where people want to live, what's a typical house that you like to either buy or sell as a rental property out there? 
So we'll do one like uh, we'll do one that's on, um, and we'll just do a regular loan, right? So not a um, we're not going to do it in an IRA or anything like that. We're going to put twenty percent down on this property. It's one hundred and sixty thousand. It's brand new, right? So you get a year warranty with it and things like that. So all that stuff's great. But after you pay um, your mortgage payment, your property taxes, your insurance, HOA, property management, all of your expenses, and you take out you know your percentage rate for vacancies and maintenance you're left with a cash flow of just over 300 bucks. Cool. Okay. Well, so that, that equals about $3,800 a year. And, um, you put down on the property just over 30 grand, 32,000 and change. So if you, if you do the math on that, on a cash return, you're just about 12%, you yeah. know? So, so it's a pretty good return. <clears throat> and then people fail to realize that, their principal reduction every year is somewhere in the neighborhood of 5%, right? And that's an, that's an actual return that's happening, right? You don't get it in your pocket until you sell it or refinance it, but it's actually, the arbitrage is happening every single year. Mm -hmm. you're getting a, on this property, you're getting another 5.9% of a return every single year. You add those two together, now you're almost 18% yeah. on your money. Plus your taxes is another somewhere around 3%, which puts you over 20%. And then even with a small, tiny little bit of appreciation, 2%, 3%, because you're leveraged into the property, that actually ends up being 15 to 20% on a return. Wow. When you start stacking all of those returns up, I mean, the 12% is good enough because almost nobody gets that inside of their you know, IRAs or 401ks anyway. Mm -hmm. But when you actually stack up all of the numbers on the return that you get, it's, it's almost unbelievable until you own these properties um, for a long period of time and you can actually see it happen. And then, the, you know, the, then, and then the next step is to just take, when the market gives you the gift of appreciation, you take the gift and you let that one house spawn two or three with the same amount of money that you put into it. You know, that's something that it may take two years. You know, if you bought back in 2000, you know, 11 or 12, it would have probably taken you two years to realize enough to be able to spawn three houses from one. So you're talking about like doing a refinance to pull out some cash to put down a new down payment, right? Yeah, depending on the market or sell it and do a 1031 tax deferred exchange into um, real into other real estate. Because what you don't want to do is pull out money and then have a, a break even or a negative cash flow on the one house to get the other houses. So if, if you have enough equity in the property that you can cash out, refinance, stay, stay really good, positive on that one, and then buy another two, then that's great. Otherwise, um, so we helped a lady of just, uh, just a little bit over a year ago sell some properties in Phoenix. She sold one house and bought three. And the reason she was able to do that is because she bought her house in Phoenix in 2012. And it was cash flowing fantastically. And when she called up, it was still cash flowing fantastically, right? But the, the thing that she wasn't calculating was her return on equity. Now she had another $75,000 worth of equity. And when you add that into what she put down on the property, now her return is not very good when you add all of that in there because there's dead equity sitting in that property. Have you heard of the phrase, and do you know who says it? Um, it's called refi till you die. I don't remember who says it, but I have heard it. <laughs> what do you, what's your philosophy on that in, in regards to rental properties? 
It really, it all depends on the numbers with me. Yeah. I, I, you know, and it also depends on the person and their risk tolerance. You know, it, it may be best for some people. See, I, I don't believe that real estate is one size fits all. We started talking about rehabs and we started talking about flipping properties. And while I don't do that anymore, I understand there's a ton of people who do that, make a lot of money. And then they, they put that money into, you know, rental properties and things like that. Yeah. But you, you know, this man, we, we hang out with a lot of, of really high powerful business owners who do real estate investing and everybody does it a little bit different. Well, it's the same thing with rental properties. So for some people, it might be great to refi until you die. So long as you actually look at the numbers that you're doing and you don't do it you know, imprudently. Sure. But for some other people, it might be, Hey, let's figure out how to pay off 10 and just be done. Yeah. You know, for other people, it may be some kind of a combination of the two of those. For, for this lady, Lynette, it was, it was actually, you know, let's sell this house over here because if she pulled her equity out, the rents in the area hadn't increased enough. And so she would have been either break even when you're break even, that really means negative or she would have been negative cash flow, yeah. which isn't a good situation. So what we did was we said, hey, look, if you do a 1031 tax deferred exchange over into these three properties, we can make all of your money work as hard as the money that you first put into this house, the 15,000 that you put down on it was working really hard back then. Well, now you've got 75 and it's not all working hard. Okay. 15 is working hard, 60 is being lazy. So let's put all 75 of it to work. And we actually put it into three different properties. For her, that made more sense. Sure. She could have just as easily though, pulled less money out of the one house and bought two instead of the other way around, right? And, and the numbers probably would have made just as much sense. Let's talk about loan products real quick then, Ron. Um, is it gotten harder in the last few years or easier to borrow money for rental property? Way harder than it was in 2007, um, but that's probably a good thing. And it's starting to loosen. It started to loosen up over the last couple of years, um, I think. Uh-huh. But yeah, you still got to be qualified. The, the days of, of having a pulse and getting a, a 100% loan on an investment property or over. Yeah. Um, at least for now. Um, so, so what are some of the requirements and I'm mostly interested in what are some of the limits that banks have on how many houses they'll loan to you on? Well, it depends on which bank you're talking about, right? So if you're talking about, um, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac loans, which is what most people are talking about when they're talking about financing these days, they've got a limit of 10. Um, the first four, get the best rates and the best terms. And then after that, you start getting hit with your interest rate and, and you potentially have to put more money down more than 20%. But once you hit 10, there are actually um, plenty of loan programs out there now that, that you can, you can get as, as many as you can qualify for and you can buy. Um, so there isn't a limit. There used to be um, because the secondary products didn't exist uh, after the crash. A lot of banks got hurt. Those products are back, and um, you'll pay you'll pay more interest, and you'll put a little bit more money down. But you can you can buy as many properties as you want nowadays. Interesting. So, what kind of what are some of the interest rates that you're seeing with Fannie Mae? And then after you reach the ten limit, what do you, what kind of interest rates are you seeing? So we're under five percent still. Those change all the time, but we're still under five percent uh, on a twenty percent down for a single family house. They actually do have some 10% programs, but I don't really think they're they're worth it because you got to pay mortgage insurance and all that other stuff cuts into your cash flow. 
And then once you get over 10, they usually want 25% down, sometimes 30% down, and you're seeing rates right around 6% probably for those loans. Okay. So really pretty good. I mean, when I, when I, in 2005, when I first started selling, six and a half was a smoking rate. Oh yeah. Then we got down uh, right around 6%. It was, it was crazy good. <laughs> now we're all spoiled at like, you know, four and a half, five percent. We, you know, it's not going to stay that way forever. We need to remember that interest rates, you know, when I bought my first house it was eight and a quarter and I'm not that old. And it, and it was, it was a smoking hot rate. My parents were, you know, a little bit angry that I got that rate because they paid 15 back when they bought their <laughs> Oh, I remember those days. Let's talk about property management, Ron, because that's the key to making all this work, right? It is. How do you find a good property manager? Let's say you're, you live in New York or California and you, uh, you're interested in some rental properties in Kansas City. How do you find a good property management? Uh, it's really hard, actually. You talked about no BS. It's really hard um, because a lot of management companies can talk. They can talk the talk and they understand how to uh, to sell you on their services, but they understand far less how to actually operate a management company. Um, and I've been through this time and time again. You know, my my clients get the benefit of of having management companies that we've that we've tested o- over time and are and are good. But when I go in to interview them, I've been doing this a long time, and you know, sometimes they're they're really good at the sales pitch, and you don't find out until you actually talk to clients and actually start start getting into um, the people who've used their services to find out exactly how they are. It's really, but it's really hard. If you live in New York and you're trying to find one in Kansas City, that's a tough deal, you know, because short of going there and spending a few days, which is what I do, you're going to be limited to on the phone and and trying to figure it out through, you know, through the online, through Yelp, right? (laughs) Well, still, when you're dealing with the houses you're talking about, it's much more, you're much more likely to find good property management that would rent, that would manage those types of homes, right? Uh, these types of homes are certainly, um, they're what the good property management companies want, but the bad property management companies want them too. And <laughs> so, you know, because they're trying to level up their game, even though they don't have really a good game, but yeah. they're still trying to, but you're right. Your point is these are attractive to, to management companies who don't want to nickel and dime you on, on all the crap that goes wrong with the, with the bad properties. Yeah. Solid management companies they want a, a house that sits there and continues to make them money and doesn't cause them a lot of grief. They're kind of like you. They, they don't really want all the grief. Yeah. It's bad property management companies that profit off of all the grief. And those are the ones you want to stay away from. You know, the ones who really hope that something breaks on your house so they can go out there and fix it for three times the cost. You know, those kind of companies. The good property management companies hope nothing happens to your house and the tenants keep paying the rent so they can just keep paying so they can have less staff and they can they can take the, the really small amount of money that they make and actually make some money with it. Yeah, I think people have the misconception, Joe, that property management companies are filthy rich because they take this huge amount of money from you on a monthly basis <laughs> and they're just making out, you know, with with the amount of money they make. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Actually, property management companies have really slim margins and it's the most thankless job on the planet Yeah, because the tenants never call them and tell them they're doing a great job and neither do the owners. Yeah. (laughs) 
That's so funny. I, I, uh, I don't know how property management companies do it. I'm glad they're there, the good ones, but it takes a special person. It does, which goes back to my first point, which means you probably aren't the special person and you should hire them. Do you think, like, can somebody just hire an assistant to manage their properties? Or do you actually need somebody, you know, boots on the ground that can manage your properties for you? You need boots on the ground. Okay. In my opinion. Um, the caveat to that, I guess, would be if, if you sell all of your properties on a lease option and you don't have to do any of the maintenance and you actually have good people in your properties that aren't screwing them up, then you could, but that's a lot of ifs. Okay. Ron, um, talk a little bit about here. We're coming toward the end of our time. Um, what are you doing today? What kind of markets are you in? And uh, what do you see as opportunity for people in the future? So I have my core business is helping people find an income properties and then putting everything together like the management you were talking about so that they can do that from New York or California or wherever they happen to be. And uh, it's my company's job to then go out and find the emerging markets and move around based on what's happening with the marketplace. Mm -hmm. So we used to be in Florida and Phoenix and Boise, Idaho and places like that. We're no longer in those markets because the prices have shot up and now the cash flow is not there. So we move to places where it is. And then as soon as everything crashes again, we'll go back into those marketplaces and we'll, we'll do it all over again. Yeah. So that's my, my core business. That's what we do. I have a separate business um, where we, we raise private capital and we buy larger apartment buildings for cash flow. Same exact principle, just on a, on a larger scale. Okay. And I have my presentation. If you listen to my presentation, when I started doing it in 2007 ish until now, it really hasn't changed. It's still the same thing. It's a little bit boring. Honestly, it's, it's, you know, you buy for cash flow and you keep buying for cash flow and someone else manages your property and it can be relatively passive. I mean, you, you still have to check your bank accounts, make sure that the money came in. You still have to communicate with your property management companies when things go wrong and, and stuff like that. But you can build a business that that runs independent of you for the most part, that you don't have to go out and, and service all the time, which allows you to be able to do the things that you want to do. It's, it's uh, it, it is the definition of freedom. So that's where the opportunity is. And in the market, the way that it sits right now, if you follow the rules, you know, pass it, you, you, you have to have positive cash flow on your properties. If you buy like that, it doesn't matter when you buy um, because you could have, you could have bought in 2008. If your property um, cash flowed really well, then incidentally, your property didn't know that it lost value in 2008 and 2009. And your, you know, your tenants, you know, the rents actually went up during 2000. 2009 through 2014, right? So you, your property didn't know it didn't get its feelings hurt. And so long as you didn't have to sell it, you're cash flowing the whole time for you, nothing really changes. Yeah. So where's the opportunity? The opportunity is in the same place. It was in 2005. It's in the same place. It was in 2008. It's in the same place it is today. Uh, if you happen to time the market really well, like the net did, and you bought in Phoenix back in 2010 or 10, 2011, well, then you got a bigger market gift. You got a bigger shot in the arm than than the other people. But the principle is no different. It's, it's the exact same principle, no matter when you buy the properties. And you can make money in any market cycle. You just have to follow the rules. That's interesting. And follow 
and be in the right marketplace. Yeah, because the number one rule is cash flow, right? So yeah. if you're in California right now and you're trying to buy a house and make it cash flow with 20% down, it, it doesn't happen. It's not going to happen. You know, I can make anything cash flow, right? If I, if I buy cash, if I pay cash for the house in California, I can make it cash flow. But then your cash on cash return is, is horrific. Mm-hmm. So the, the point is, is that if you're going to buy it leveraged, it, it needs to positively cash flow. And if you, if you take that one rule and you apply it to a whole bunch of marketplaces across the country right now, you can eliminate a ton of marketplaces because that the fir- very first rule doesn't, doesn't work. Right. And, you know, don't buy in one horse towns. Don't buy in the hood. We already beat that one to death, man, but don't do it. But one horse towns, it's like Detroit. I mean, I hate to pick on Detroit, but if you if you sunk money into Detroit back in the day and then the, the horse got shot or at least got sick like it did, it affects you because Detroit was centered almost entirely on the car industry, which got hurt. Yeah. You know, it's like North Dakota. I had so many people in my office telling me that we should be up in, in North Dakota investing in the middle of nowhere because of, of the oil up there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But that's what 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 happens if the price of oil changes? They're like, well, that that the oil is not ever going to happen. There's so much oil up there. Yada yada yada. Well, well, it did change, didn't it? Oh yeah. And then what? And then what? No one else is going to live up there. And there is nothing up there but oil. So don't buy one horse towns. You know, don't 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 get caught up in the hype of some of those things. You see the fundamentals of of of, of in income properties. Yeah. You can generally speaking not get hurt. What are some of the markets you like right now, Ron? I like in the Midwest, um, South places that cash flow uh, where the rents are higher and the prices are still low, uh, especially where you can build brand new construction and and have really good returns, solid returns. Hmm. Um, because then you're going to have five to ten years of relative ease with your maintenance. You know, no huge expenses yeah. um, should because your HVAC is new and you know, all the things that really could go wrong and cost you a lot of money are new. So Kansas City, I love Kansas City. I'm from there, obviously. I know the market really well, but it's a great cash flow market. Like you said, we're in Memphis. We're in Oklahoma City. Uh, we're in Northwest Arkansas around Walmart. Um, we're in, in Alabama. We're in North Carolina, um, South Carolina. You know, kind of that Midwest. Indianapolis is a great market. Um, things like that where nice. you can really solid cash flow, you know, and then these high appreciating markets um, that everybody loves to talk about because you can make so much money so fast in those, in those marketplaces, wait for them to crash Yeah. and everything crashes. Then we go in and gobble all that stuff up because they are going to come roaring back and you're going to have really big equity swings, but you can't break the fundamental number one rule in order to get the big gains. That's what people did wrong back in 2006, seven and eight. They bought only for appreciation, and then when the appreciation trade ended, it was all over. Man, yeah. I remember so many people were doing cash-out refinances where they would pull out their money, you know, and actually put some money in their pocket when they bought the house. To pay the negative payments, too, right? So once you <laughs> once you had I, – I, I'll never forget. I was at a, I was at a seminar uh, out in California, and um, there was a guy up there, and he had – 40 houses on this list on this spreadsheet and it had his negative cash flow payment on a monthly basis and it was obscene wow it, it was obscene 
And on anybody on a normal day, it would scare the hell out of them. Well, here's this number, and he was laughing about it because all of these were appreciating, and every month, uh, you know, or every every so so many months, he would cash out refinance wow. one or two or three of them, and he would pay the negatives on these other ones, and then he would put some in his pocket, like you're saying, and he he was it was it was this fun game that was never going to end. And I sat back in the back of the room and I'm thinking, Oh my gosh. <laughs> I remember those days. Yeah. I can't, we couldn't believe people were doing that, but wow. they were. Wow. 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 Okay. So Ron, I wish we had more time. So we should end this up, wrap this up now, but um, there's a couple things. I think if somebody wants to work with you or get more information, we didn't even talk about the big apartment buildings that we're doing, that you're doing, and how they could become an investor with you, either by lending some money on an apartment building or maybe even buying an apartment building with you. How can, uh, and, and, and let's say somebody's interested in getting some properties from you, uh, how can they reach you? I'm going to give another website here in a minute where they can watch one of your webinars, but how can people contact you, Ron, if they want to work with you? Um, yeah, I mean, it's uh, my website um, is rpcinvest.com. Okay. Um, so they can go there and they can find us. Um, you can call our office too. It's uh, 801-990-5109. 801-990-5109. You your, email. Your, your, your website again is rp as in Peter C as in cat invest.com, rpc. Yep, rpcinvest.com. Dot com stands for RP Capital, okay, uh, which, is, which is a company. So RP Capital, so rpcinvest.com. You can find us there. And yeah, I encourage everybody to uh, the, the the video that you're going to tell them about is it's a 30 minute on income properties. Um, talks a little about some of what we have, but I have examples in there and um, I have all the rules listed out that, that you, you're going to want to know before you buy income properties and stuff like that. So uh, yeah, I'd highly recommend they they listen to that. 30 minutes on a video presentation. It's, it's, um, I think it'd be beneficial. So let me give you guys that link, write this down, get a pen and paper to watch this special video. It's about 30 minutes long from Ron. I'm going to give you a link. It's R E I M podcast.com slash Ron R E I M for real estate investing mastery podcast.com slash Ron. And all these links will be in the show notes. But to watch that video, I think it's going to be really important for you guys just to kind of see some of the example deals that Ron does and get learn some more about the, his business and how you can kind of grow your own retirement portfolio with smart, passive rental properties. Um, R-E-I-M podcast.com slash Ron. Cool, Ron. So I appreciate your time. I wish we had more time. But... Um, I just want to tell everybody listening to this podcast that I've known Ron Phillips now uh, for a while, and I've, I've sat next to him on several different masterminds and have spent a lot of time talking to him about his business. He's been giving, he's given me tons of great advice about my business. Um, I really appreciate your integrity, Ron. I appreciate you uh, not being the typical investor that just cares about the bottom $9. You really do care about people that you're working with. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, I, I appreciate that, uh, Joe. And it's, and it's been, it's been fun. I hope uh, everybody got a lot out of it. And um, if, if you want any more information, just let us know. We're, we're kind of an open book at my company. So um, if you have questions, we're happy to help. We've got a ton of YouTube videos that, that are free training. We don't sell training. So 
Uh, all of it's free. If you need anything about in income properties, come see us. I'm sure there's a video or a training that we've got some that we can do that, that, that can help you with, with income properties. And if you're an accredited investor, uh, give us a shout. We do have some other opportunities there as well that are, that are really pretty cool. So I, I appreciate the time, Joe. It was, it was fun. What is your, you, you have a YouTube channel with a lot of videos? Uh, I do. And I, let me, uh, so if you go to YouTube and do a search for Ron Phillips, you're not the big heavyweight guy that looks like that he's preaching sermons everywhere, right? I'm not the pastor. And incidentally, uh, I couldn't get ronphillips.com because that guy beat me to it. <laughs> yeah, he's apparently a really good guy. So I'd give you that. But if you, if you search Ron Phillips um, real estate, you'll find me. Mine is actually investment prop, P-R-O-P, coach. Investment. I see it here. Yep. And so my channel um, is there's a there are quite a few videos on there um, and then subscribe. And I tell you the same thing uh, Joe told you. If, you. if you like one of the videos that's on there, um, leave us a comment. We, we appreciate it. Yeah. I just subscribed. Well, thank you, man. I appreciate it. I do have more subscribers than you do. Just I, there's no, there's no question that you are a bigger <laughs> deal than I am, Joe McCall. I aspire to one day be uh, as big a deal as you. So, <laughs> all right, man. I'm just kidding, but I do have more subscribers. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> thanks a lot, Ron. Uh, it's been a pleasure, uh, guys. Uh, Ron's website again is rpcinvest.com, or his phone number is eight zero one nine nine zero five one zero nine. And uh, we'll see you guys later. Don't forget. Leave a review on iTunes if you like the show. Uh, just go to iTunes, do a search for Real Estate Investing Mastery. You'll see us on there. Uh, we'd appreciate leaving a review. Hey, thanks a lot, guys, and uh, we'll see you later. Thanks, Ron. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you.